What are the most important factors in success? Well, it's a tough question because it depends on success in what? If we're talking about some kind of great academic or scientific endeavor, then a certain amount of knowledge is going to be an important factor in success. If we're talking about athletics, then a certain ability in athletics, a certain size, a certain height, a certain body type for the type of activity we're talking about, that might be important for success. Success is one of those things that has many factors to it, and a lot of it is dependent on what area you're trying to succeed in. But I think if you thought about it, if we took maybe a poll of the congregation, or if you did perhaps an internet search for factors in success, there might be certain factors that appeared on everybody's list or on most lists. And one of those factors that would appear on a lot of people's lists is confidence. Confidence is something that many people feel is an important factor in success. Or to put it another way, people think that confidence is essential to success. And I think that this is a reasonable assumption. I think it's a reasonable thing to think. That confidence is an essential factor in success. And the reason is pretty obvious, isn't it? When you feel confident you might try things that you might not ordinarily try. We've all been there. We've all been in a situation where we were asked to try something or we thought we might like to try something, and yet because we weren't confident about our ability to perform, we weren't confident maybe about our ability not to hurt ourselves, if it's like water skiing or something like that. Maybe a lack of confidence kept us from trying something that we would like to try, maybe that we would actually be good at if we tried it, but lacking confidence, we never even tried. And so, of course, if you don't try something, you cannot succeed at it by definition. And so it's reasonable for people to think that success is somehow tied to confidence or that confidence has some reasonable um, factor in somebody's ability to succeed. And so let's think about confidence for a moment. Where does confidence come from? Well, I would suggest that it comes from at least two factors. Confidence comes from at least two sources. One of those sources is that it comes from a past record of success. If you pass second grade, you probably feel reasonably confident going into third grade, all right? Because you passed kindergarten, first grade, and second grade, and so third grade can't be that much harder than second grade, right? It's designed for people who finish second grade. And so a past track record of success gives you some confidence in the future. And you know this, the more you practice something and the more you succeed at it, even at a beginner level, it gives you greater confidence to try a harder level or to try something in um, a more advanced way. And so one of the factors that gives people success, one of the ingredients of confidence is a past record of success. Another factor is this, it comes from comparing yourself to others. Have you ever been in a situation where you were showing up for something, you were going to try something, you had to do something, and you really weren't sure about your ability to succeed at it? You felt a lack, a lack of confidence, and then you showed up and kind of looked at who else was there. And without being too negative or looking down on others too much, you thought, well, 
I'm at least as competent as the other people in this room. They don't seem any extra um, you know, qualified more than I am. And so maybe you just had a, a little bit of a boost to your confidence because you surveyed the others who will be participating. Maybe it's the competition. Maybe you showed up for a game and you looked at the other people competing and you thought, well, okay, they're not that much more athletic than I am. Maybe success is possible. All right. And so these two factors, a past track record of success and comparing yourself to others are two of the things that give people confidence. The ability to succeed because they have confidence to try. And so I think it's reasonable that confidence is an, a factor in someone's success. But there's a question that lies behind the idea of confidence that I think we need to explore. And that means that is this confidence in what? Sure, confidence can be a factor in success. But where does your confidence come from? What is the source of it? Or what object are you placing your confidence in? And the truth of the matter is that while people think that confidence is essential to success, I think it's also true that confidence is only as good as its object. If your confidence is misplaced in, a, in an object that's no good, success will not follow. Think about all of the people who had confidence in an investor who had a long track record of success. And so they put their money in with that investor, but that investor happened to be um, running a Ponzi scheme. And so their past record of success was just about more people putting the money in. And in fact, they were actually losing money. In that case, the success that somebody had confidence in was misplaced. The confidence was misplaced because the person didn't actually have the confidence or the, uh, the track record that they purported to have. Okay, and so confidence is important to success, but confidence is really only as good as the object of that person's confidence. And I left those two factors on the screen, down in the corner there, because we're going to come back to them again and again in this message. We're going to come back to these two factors as we evaluate the kind of objects that people have for confidence. Here in our passage this morning, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus wants to speak about confidence and its object. And we see that beginning in verse 9, where the subject of confidence is introduced. The scripture says, To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Luke gives us a preamble to the parable. He gives us an introduction to the parable. He tells us in advance what meaning to look for in the parable. And did you notice that the two factors that are on that screen down in the corner were both stated in different words in what Luke said here in verse 9. Look at verse 9 again. To some who were confident in their own righteousness, that's a past track record of success, and look down on others, that's comparing yourself to other people. Luke here is telling us Jesus is going to talk about confidence here, and he's going to talk about spiritual confidence most of all. But I think these principles talk about confidence in every area of life, or in many areas of life at least. And Jesus is teaching here, and his parable is teaching, and Luke is telling us, you better be careful about what the object of your confidence is. Yeah, confidence is important to success, but if your confidence is misplaced, the success you think you're going to get will not necessarily follow. 
So Luke introduced this parable in verse 9. And in verse 10, we see one of the potential objects of confidence. The reasons for confidence are the same, no matter what the object is. But the object can change. And one object of confidence is yourself. And this is probably what came to your mind when I started talking about confidence. You probably thought about self-confidence. And that's not an accident. I I sort of structured things to hopefully suggest to you that you should think about self-confidence. Because that's where a lot of people's confidence or lack of it comes from. Either they feel confident because they have a past track record of success or because they compare themselves to others or they lack confidence because of those two things. One of the objects of confidence is a person's self. And this can be true in a person's spiritual life every bit as much as in any other area of their life. And as Jesus began the parable in verse 10 and began describing this parable in verses 10 through 12, he shows us a man whose confidence was in himself. Look at verse 10 with me. Jesus said, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. This story is a parable, and Jesus' parables are fictional um, per se, but they often parallel situations that actually could happen in real life, and this is certainly one of them. People in Judaism, people who were Israelites, went up to the temple to pray on a regular basis. All kinds of people, no matter what their station in life. There were two designated times of prayer, one in the morning and one in the evening in Judaism. But people could come to the temple at any time to pray, and the scriptures even say you could be where you were and just pray toward the temple. And so Jesus tells us in verse 10 that these two men come up to pray, and these two men other than being Jewish and Gentile, two two men who were both Jewish people could not be more different from each other. One of them is a Pharisee. Pharisees were highly respected in the world in which Jesus lived. They were people who excelled religiously. Yes, they had secular pursuits. Every Pharisee was someone who had a job outside of religion. They did not make their money by being professional religious people or professional teachers. All of these Pharisees had their own occupation, but what they were known for was not their occupation as much as it was their religious zeal, their knowledge of the scriptures, their leadership in spiritual things. And Jesus tells us that one of the people who went up to the, to the temple to pray on this particular day was a Pharisee, someone who was religiously respected. The other man, verse 10 tells us, was a tax collector. This is somebody on the opposite pole of respect in Judaism. This is someone who was regarded by Jewish people as a sellout, someone who gave up his country for Rome because he was collecting taxes for the Roman government. And so these two people could not be more different and still both be Jewish men. But notice how Jesus describes the first man, the Pharisee. He describes a man who is confident in himself. He describes a man who has self-confidence. He describes a man, to use the verse 9's language, who was confident in his own righteousness. In verse 11, we see this description. It says, the Pharisee stood by himself. And this is not an expression of modesty at all. It's an expression of pride. It's a man who walked right up to where the altar was. That's where 
prayers were sort of offered, the incense offering, the incense poured out was a symbol of prayer going up to God. And so um, many people would sometimes gather as close to the altar as they could. And here's a man who walked right up front and stood apart from everyone else because he had a sense of self-confidence, spiritually speaking. But notice his prayer. It's also, it's also filled with words of self-confidence. It's true in verse 10 that he says this, verse 11, I mean, that he prayed, God, I thank you. And so at the very beginning of his prayer, it looks like he is um, speaking an expression of dependence upon God. He addresses God. He doesn't address himself. And so we can give him a point for that. And he says, I thank you, as if what he's about to say is an expression of God's work in his life. And so we can give him a point for that. But notice he doesn't say, God, I thank you for what you have done in my life. Instead, he says, I thank you for who I am as a person. Notice verse 11. I thank you that I am not like other people. What is he saying here? He is saying, God, I am a cut above. I'm in a separate class. I'm different than everyone else. Yeah, God, you made me this way, he thinks. But he feels good about where he is in his station. He feels good about the kind of person he is. And now he goes on and designates exactly who he thinks he's better than. Verse 11 goes on and says, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, okay, people who steal, evildoers, this is a general class of people, adulterers, these are people who cheat on their spouse. All of these are well-known sins from the Old Testament. And then he says this, or even this tax collector. Now, how did he know that this man was a tax collector? Was he wearing a badge? that says Roman tax collector? I doubt it. Maybe he had to wear some kind of uniform for his profession or some kind of designation of his status or his, um, of his position. But I don't think you would wear that to the temple, especially knowing how people treated and thought of tax collectors in their world. And so the possibility and the implication is that maybe these two men actually knew each other. Maybe somehow this man had shown up at the Pharisee's home to collect taxes, and he recognized this man. And so as he considers his station in life, and as he pours out his thanks to God, the things that come to his mind to thank God for are all personal attributes that make him feel superior to other people. The object of his confidence is himself, because he feels he is different than everyone else including a man who is standing nearby him, a man that he knows, a man who is a sellout by his definition of things, a man who is a tax collector. And so he's telling us that, that his object, his, the object of his confidence is in himself. Now, how do you know if your object of confidence is in yourself? Well, one way is if you compare yourself to others. That's number two in the little box there, right? You compare yourself to others. And again, all of us do this at times in our life. I am not a good basketball player by any means. I never have been. I don't have the stature for it. I don't have the coordination for it. And I haven't played basketball that much. And so if I were showing up to play basketball in a serious way and something serious was on the line, I would feel very not confident about my chances. Unless I showed up in the gym and it was full of fourth graders. All right. Then comparing myself stature-wise to them, I would say all of a sudden I have a boost in my confidence. 
That's where this guy is. As he comes before the Lord, his standing before God is not based on the grace of God or the mercy of God or anything about who God is. It's based on looking around him and knowing the sins of others and the shortcomings of others and saying as he compares himself to others, I'm in a class by myself here. And If you find yourself feeling this way from time to time, if you think about other people you know and problems that they've experienced in life, self-inflicted problems even, and you feel a sense of congratulations that you don't deal with those kinds of problems and you haven't made those kinds of errors or mistakes in your life and you feel good about your life, that's a signal. It's an indication that maybe your confidence is in yourself because you've compared yourself to others. But there's more to this, and this brings us to the first thing in that little box of things that give people confidence, and that is the past record of success. And this man has that as well. Notice in verse 12, he talks about his ongoing practices as a religious man. He says in verse 12, I fast twice a week. Now, the Old Testament commanded fasting one time a year for one day. And so a man who fasts twice a week is saying, I do far more extra beyond what God himself requires. And he says, I give a tenth of all I get. Now, the Bible commands this as well. It commanded people in Judaism to tithe and to give 10% of what they earned. But this man says, I don't just give 10% of my earnings. I give 10% of what people give to me, my gifts. I make sure that I am scrupulous about giving 10% of everything. And I never ask the question, would the Lord really want me to tithe on this? No, I just give it generously. Again, this man is saying, I've done so many things beyond what God requires that my past track record of success gives me confidence as I stand before God. And so your confidence is in yourself if you compare yourself to others, but it also might be in yourself and is in yourself if you're counting on your moral success. That's really what this guy is doing. At the end of the day, he's saying, I've been morally successful more than other people and more than what God requires. And so therefore, he felt pretty good about his standing before God. He felt that God was eagerly waiting for his prayers and desiring to do whatever he asked because this man was such an upstanding citizen, someone who deserved, in a sense, the attention of God. Confidence is only as good as its object, and one object of confidence is self. Is there another? Is there something that can give us confidence in our lives but comes from something else outside of ourselves? Yes, of course there is. And that brings us to the second man in our story, the man who's described as a tax collector in this story. One object of confidence is and can be yourself, but another object of confidence is God. And that's where the tax collector comes into the story. A man who was not expected to be the hero of the story becomes the hero, but he comes, becomes the hero in a very anti-heroic type of way. Look what the scripture says about him in verse 13. In contrast to everything that's true about the Pharisee, verse 13 says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He isn't bold in approaching the Lord's altar 
where the incense is poured out and prayers go up to God. Instead, he stands off in the, in the shadows, in the corner, by the wall. He doesn't want to be seen by anyone else and certainly doesn't want to inconvenience anyone else who might be there to pray. He has a very realistic sense of his own standing before the community. But he also has a realistic sense of his standing before God because verse 13 says, he would not even look up to heaven. You understand that as Christians, or at least in our culture as Christians, it's customary for us to bow our heads before God when we pray, right? You might have heard, as I did when you were in Sunday school, bow your head and close your eyes when it's time to pray. This is the at least American posture for prayer, but that's not the way it was in the days in which Jesus lived. There were many postures that were acceptable for prayer. A person could be standing, often could be on their knees. There are different ways someone might pray, but many people looked up to heaven like the Pharisee did. Many people turned their attention to God. They didn't bow their heads. This man bowed his head. His approach to God was different. And it's because, again, he was aware of his own shame. He was aware of his standing before God, his lack of standing, you might say, before God. And so here's a man who understands his confidence is not in himself. And how do you know if your confidence is in God or whether it is in yourself? Well, we talked about ways to know how your confidence is in yourself, but notice how you can tell if your confidence is in God. The first one is your confidence is in God if you compare yourself to Him. Remember, the second way to, know, to be confident is to compare yourself to others. Well, God is other. And someone who has their confidence in God compares themselves not to other people, but to God himself. And that comparison doesn't give self-confidence. It gives just the opposite. It gives a realistic portrait. It shows you how sinful you really are. That's what happened to this man. When he came into the temple to pray... He may have felt inferior to the Pharisee and others around him, but he really wasn't concerned about what they thought. He was concerned about what God knew of him. And in verse 13, he says, The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not look up to heaven, but beat his breast. This is a sign of intense agony. It's a sign of inflicting pain on someone's self because of the inner turmoil they feel. And if you've ever like, put your hands forcefully on your head because you've done something stupid or clasped your heart when you've been surprised by something, this is the kind of reflex that is being talked about here. It's a kind of uh, physical action that's the expression of a deep inward pain. It says, he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, the words a sinner tell us, that this man was comparing himself to God. He knew who God was. He knew that God was holy and righteous and just. He was fully aware of God's laws as detailed in the Old Testament, and he was fully aware of his own shortcomings. Sure, there may have been more sinful men in Israel than him. There may have been tax collectors who were greater sinners than he was. Maybe he wasn't guilty of everything on the Pharisees' list of problems. Maybe he wasn't guilty of any of them other than being a tax collector. 
But he's not worried about whether he has anybody below him where he can say, God, I know I haven't been perfect, but I've been better than him and better than them. That's not his concern at all. His comparison is to God. And in comparison to God, we all fall short. That's one of the core tenets of our faith as Christians. That when it comes to God and who he is and what he expects of his creation, we have all sinned. We've all missed the mark of God's perfection. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, to quote the book of Romans chapter 3. Here's a man who has confidence in God, and it starts with comparing himself to God, and not in a way that bolsters his self-confidence. Rather, it's in a way that lays him low. What he's doing here is the expression that we call repentance. Because you see, the sinful choices that this man made, that he knows about, he made willingly. He willingly chose to break whatever laws of God he chose. And that's because he had a pattern of thinking that said, I will be happy if I choose these methods of breaking God's laws or choose these ways of living. I will get something good if I sell out my country and become a tax collector or if I perform some other sin. But now his thinking has changed as he's meditated on the perfections of God and the greatness of who God is. He has become painfully aware of how far he has fallen short of God by his own moral choices. And so he lacks self-confidence completely because he sees himself for who he really is. The question that every person who will ever know God must come to face is, have I really understood how sinful and guilty I am before a holy God? Have I ever come face to face and honestly assessed my own depravity? Have I ever really acknowledged to myself and to God how far I've fallen short of His greatness? That's where knowing God and making God your confidence begins. It begins at, by seeing yourself for who you really are, how sinful you really are before a holy God. So the comparison here is not, I'm better than God or better than others, certainly. It's, God is great and I fall, fall far short of Him. That's not what we would ordinarily think of as something that gives confidence because it doesn't give one self-confidence. It hurts somebody's self-confidence. But that's exactly where you need to be to have confidence before God, to be received by God as a person. Because you see, once you get to the place where you know who God is and see Him as He is and know yourself for who you are before God, then you are in a position where you can receive God's goodness and God's grace. Your confidence is in yourself if you compare yourself to others and if you're counting on your own moral success. But your confidence is in God if you compare yourself to Him and see how sinful you really are, and if you're counting on His moral success, not on your own. See, that's key. This man has nothing to bring to God but a genuine confession of his sins. But the reason that he had confidence and could have confidence before God is because God is perfect in his, trans, in his uh, record of moral success. Look at verse 13 again. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What is mercy? Mercy is the withholding of judgment. 
The Bible tells us that this is a characteristic of God. It's one that God is actually rich in. Someone who is merciful, someone who does not pour out judgment and anger on someone who deserves it, that is a virtuous person. It's hard to be like that, isn't it? If someone sinned against you, it's hard not to go after them with every tool of justice you can think of. It's very human to want justice. And God wants justice too. The Bible says that God is merciful. That is, he loves to withhold justice, to withhold anger from those who deserve it. This man was banking on that. He was banking on the quality of God's mercy, not on his own self-righteousness, not on his own moral performance. He was banking on the goodness, the grace, the love, and the mercy of God the Father. He had read the scriptures and knew how far he'd fallen short, but he'd also read the scriptures and seen that God forgives sinners who come to him in repentance. So Jesus gives us a conclusion about these two men. He tells us what the result of their confidence was. And we see that in verse 14 where it says, I tell you that this man, that is the tax collector, the last one Jesus spoke of, this man went home justified before God. Now, what Jesus is telling us here is here's a man who had, should have confidence and could have confidence that his prayers were heard and that he was and that he would receive the mercy of God even though he was a sinner. But notice how the, uh, Jesus describes the man in verse 14. He says he went home justified before God. We need to think about this quality and understand what it, how it relates to everything Jesus is teaching here. Because we don't really talk about being justified very often other than to excuse something that is bad, okay? Um, if I get pulled over for speeding, okay, and I'm objectively guilty, I know I was going 80 in a 25-mile-an-hour zone, all right? There's no question about my guilt. But as the officer pulls up or co comes up to my window, he sees that I have some wound that I've you know, just bandaged up and that I'm actually trying to get to the hospital, he might consider my speeding in that instance to be justified. All right, in other words, what he is saying is the circumstances excuse the violation. That's what we think of when we think of the word justified. But the biblical meaning is much deeper than that. To be justified in God's sight is not, well, I'm going to excuse your misdoings because you had a good reason for sinning. To be justified in the sight of God is to be declared not guilty. And the only way to be declared not guilty is because of the merits of someone else. Jesus here is indicating, and later on in a, in a future message, we're going to get more into the details of how this works. But Jesus here is indicating that God declares sinners not guilty because he is merciful. And he does so because Jesus, Receive the justice of God for this man's sin. It hasn't happened yet, like in that time when Jesus spoke, because he had not yet gone to the cross. But that was the plan. The plan was for Christ himself to pay the penalty for this man's sin, for him to die in this man's place. And because this man looked to God and said, God, I have no reason to be confident of my own righteousness. I have no reason for you to hear my prayer or receive me as your son. 
but I believe you're a merciful God. And I've seen in Scripture, I've seen your track record, God, right? That's one of the methods of of confidence is a a past record of success, number one. God, I've seen your past record of success, justifying sinners who come before you. And so, God, I come confessing my guilt, confessing my worthlessness, morally speaking, and falling, God, on who you are, the greatness of your mercy. Jesus said, this is the man whom God pronounced not guilty. He's the one who was justified before God. And so when it comes to thinking about confidence, and especially in the spiritual realm, where should our confidence be placed? What is the proper object for a person's confidence? That's the point of this whole story, and it's the big idea for this message. Put your confidence in God, not in yourself. Put your confidence in God not in yourself. The reason is that God elevates those who lower themselves in repentance. God elevates those who lower themselves in repentance. Verse 14 says, I tell you, this man rather than the other went home justified before God. Why? For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the principle by which God works. The minute your confidence is in yourself, whether it's because you feel you have done righteous things to earn favor with God or because you think you have done it all the right way, you prayed the right words and said the right things. If your confidence is in a prayer you prayed or even in having good, solid biblical theology, it's misplaced because it's ultimately falling back to yourself. Confidence is only as good as its object, so put your confidence in God and God Uh, putting your confidence in God starts when you lower yourself in repentance. God exalts those. That is, he accepts us. He pronounces us not guilty. He receives us as his children when we come to him by faith and when we lower ourselves in repentance. Now in verses 15 through 17, Jesus is going to give us another story, or Luke's going to give us another story from the life of Jesus that emphasizes this same point and, and extends it a bit. It tells us that God's is the, should be the object of our confidence. One, because he loves to exalt those who humble themselves. But there's another reason why you should put your confidence in God, and that is he gives his kingdom to those who depend on him like a child. Look with me at verses 15 through 17. The scripture says, People were bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. And what's going on here is probably they're asking Christ to pronounce a blessing on these children. That's, that's the point of his putting his hands on them. They're saying, pray a blessing over this child, this baby of mine. Verse 15 continues, when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. Now, Luke doesn't tell us exactly why, but it's not hard to speculate why. The disciples thought this was a, a profound waste of Jesus' time. Praying over babies when there are loaves and fishes that could be multiplied, when there's water to be walked on, when there are lepers to cleanse and other people to heal, when there are kingdom truths to present and things to do, why would Jesus spend his time praying over babies? And it's even worse than you think, the disciples, because you see, in Jesus' world, babies weren't, and, and children were not given the same type of honor that we give them. We at least we say we love children. We say they're important. We say they're the future. And all these things are true. Children should be 
treated with love and dignity, and we should realize that they're our future, but that's not the way people thought in Jesus' time. In Jesus' time, you had to earn respect, and children were thought of as kind of a waste of time. They were to be cared for by women when it came to men, and they were not worthy of a man's attention until they reached the teenage years when they started to look like men and act like men and be useful like men. And so this is why the disciples think this is such a waste of time for Jesus. Wait until the kid's 13, then bring him to Jesus when he can do us some good. That's, the, that's kind of the thought behind what they say. But Jesus is having none of this. The disciples rebuke the, pe- the women, particularly, who are trying to bring their babies to Jesus. But notice verse 16, Jesus called the children to him, and the words are different. The word in verse 15 is the word for babies. The word for children in verse 16 is a much broader term for all types of children. Jesus is turning the tables on the disciples and saying, no, 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 stop rebuking them. In fact, don't just bring me the baby. Bring me all the kids that are out there, every child that's out there. Let them come to me. And do not hinder them, he says in verse 16, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now, this passage, I think, has been somewhat at least misunderstood by Christians by us. Because again, we've um, romanticized children a bit too much. We think of children as being really um, submissive and, and really loving. And so this is the kind of person God wants. God wants somebody who's loving and kind and submissive. Have you ever had a child? <laughs> I mean, yes, they have these qualities at times, but they also have some qualities that are not so wonderful. And it takes discipline and education to teach them to be loving and kind and dependent. Kids don't always accept everything their parents say, do they? And so we've romanticized this passage too much. Jesus isn't saying children are so wonderful, be more wonderful and the kingdom will come to you. No, what he's saying is this, children can't do anything for themselves. That's the point. Children have nothing on their own. They can do nothing on their own. If you think of your home like a kingdom, yes, because that's what Jesus is going to say, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So if your home is a kingdom and and the, the house itself is your castle, and the children that you and your spouse have born go out to play, and then they come home at the end of the day, and you would say, what are you doing in my castle? Right? Go find your own kingdom for yourself. Of course you wouldn't say that because children don't have the means, they don't have the ability to earn a place for themselves. What they have is a gift that's given lovingly by you as the parent to them. And whether they're brats or not, you take care of them because they're dependent upon you. That's what Jesus is saying here. The kingdom of God belongs to those who can't make a kingdom for themselves, who have no other place to go, who have no confidence outside of God. And so they come to him like children, fully dependent on their parents. They come to him depending on God alone. And so Jesus says, truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. See that? Receive This is how we come into the presence of God. This is how we become his children. We stop trying to impress him with our good works. We stop trying to say, I know God, I've done some bad things, but I'm better than him or her. We stop living on our own track record and our own comparison to others. And instead we say, God, I'm a child. I can't do anything for myself spiritually. I need you, my loving parent, to give me the kingdom. This is where real confidence 
Confidence that changes you spiritually and saves you eternally comes from. Not in yourself. It comes from God. And so put your confidence in God, not in yourself. If you've come here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is the message you need more than anything. If you think I am too bad that God could never save me, you've misjudged God completely and you've misunderstood what God looks for. God's looking for people just like you and he wants to give you the kingdom just like a child gives everything to his children. What he wants you to do is to receive it, to to recognize your dependence upon him and to receive his kingdom as a gift. So if you've come here and you're not a Christian, you're ready. If you know that you are a sinner before God, you're ready to be given the gift of justification. You're ready to be declared not guilty before God if you will come before him and receive his free gift of salvation as a gift. As Christians, though, we can fall back into these patterns, can't we? We can think that God owes us something because of our track record of success or our comparative ability and moral standing before other people. So, This passage applies to us as well. It reminds us how everything we have spiritually is dependent on God. Now we must never become proud about our own accomplishments or put our own confidence in ourselves. How again and again we need to come before the cross of Christ and remind ourselves that everything we have are become because of him. We need to constantly remind ourselves to put our confidence in God and It's a great introduction to the Lord's table, which we'll celebrate in a few moments, where we acknowledge that it is the merits of Christ for me that give me standing before God, nothing rather than anything I have done for myself. Where's your confidence this morning? Is it in yourself? Some of the reasons why you may lack assurance in your salvation is because you're asking questions like, did I really pray the right prayer? Was I really repentant enough? Did I really have faith in God? Is my faith good enough? These are all self-confident kind of questions. They're questions about your own self-competence. The antidote to these things is not to have better faith or more repentance or more like hurt in your heart over your own sins. The answer is to look to God, to know who he is and know that he loves and receives sinners who put their confidence in him. Put your confidence in God, not in yourself. This is the way to success spiritually, a success that God gives as a gift.